Good morning, church. You know, when we, uh, I'm Kevin, I'm the youth pastor here this morning, and I'm just so honored to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, you know, when I do a message in youth group, one of the things I'll do is I'll introduce a little icebreaker question. So maybe you could help me be comfortable preaching here and engage in a little icebreaker with your neighbors around you. All right. My icebreaker for you guys today is what is your favorite album? What is your favorite album? I'll give you guys 15 seconds. All right. And then, yeah, just talk, go ahead and talk to your neighbors around you. Ready, set, go. What is your favorite album? And time. All right. All right, favorite album. Okay, I, I heard some laughter. I heard some laughter, surprisingly. That's surprising. Okay. Is anybody feeling bold enough to share their favorite album in church? No judgment. I promise. No judgment. No judgment. Anyone? We know if Pastor Tim was here, he'd probably be named. Oh, an album. What is an album? <laughs> Great question. Great question. An album is a collection of songs by a music artist, com basically compiled into usually 10, 12, sometimes more tracks or songs. So yeah, your favorite uh, CD, album, record, maybe, might be another term. Wow, I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> a little thrown off now. Any, anybody else? Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, or what, what, a specific Beach Boys album? Okay, Beach Boys. Yeah, Beach Boys is great. Beach Boys is great. Pet Sounds is, I think, my favorite Beach Boys album. Anybody else? Ooh, I love Eric, Cla Eric Clapton's one of my favorite guitarists, so I do love that call. That's awesome. You know, if Pastor Tim were here, he'd probably be naming like a U2 album or, of some sort. Right. Um, I remember when my wife and I took a trip to Joshua Tree, I turned on the U2 album Joshua Tree. I sent him a screenshot of, hey, Pastor Tim, look what I'm listening to right now, and look where I am. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, currently my favorite way to listen to music, there's so many different ways you can listen to music today. You can listen to it on your phone, on the radio. Uh, live music is always really, really fun as well. But my favorite way to currently listen to music is actually on a physical vinyl record. Uh, I, I borrowed, stole, some records from my dad's house. <laughs> uh, I asked. I asked him first. I wasn't really stealing. But I took some records from my dad's house. He had a lot of really good stuff in there. He wasn't really using it. And I started listening to music that way. And I really, really enjoyed it. There's something tactile about it. The audio itself is a little warmer. But there's one thing I really like about listening to music on a vinyl record player. Uh, you know, when you listen to a music streaming app, like, say, Spotify, or Apple Music, or just you know, music through your phone, through an app, what happens is that the algorithms in the app will then take the music that you like and listen to, and then give you, give you suggestions based on what you like and listen to. And essentially what it's doing is that it's reflecting your own tastes back to you. But when you listen to an album, you are essentially trying to listen to music as intended by the artist. And there are all these little bits and pieces just from the fact that when you put a record down on a record player, 
it's not so easy to change tracks mid-song because it's on a needle and it's spinning, right? So you have to kind of listen to the album the whole way through. And then there's even the album cover art, the lyrics insert. The album is trying to get you to engage, or the artist is trying to get you to engage with their work on their terms. However, I think a lot of the times when we come to scripture, we treat it a little bit more like a playlist or a streaming app than we do an album. Maybe we pick and choose our favorite verses or songs, right? Our favorite book, and we can even create our own sort of personal canon within a canon. And I think this is especially true of the Psalms. You know, for the longest time, I thought the Psalms was just this random collection of Hebrew poetry that we see in the Bible. Like, you know, you read the Old Testament, you read the Torah, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, you read the story of Ruth, of Joshua, and then you get to this random poetic section. You're like, what are these doing here? Like, okay, these are kind of cool. They're kind of interesting. Though well, that's a really nice thought and idea. Almost like some ancient Israelite was compiling 150 Hebrew uh, poems and just going, oh, I remember what I was doing in the summer of 600 BC. Let me put this poem right here smack dab in the middle of the Bible, right? But that's not really how the Psalms are working. And it, by the way, it's not bad to associate our own experiences with a passage of Scripture. You know, a lot of us have those passages that we cling to that have spoken so deeply to our personal lives. But the danger is when we maybe elevate our experience with a passage to the level of prescription or even dogma. The Psalms have a theological and cultural context. There is an artist behind the Psalms who wants us to engage with his work on his terms. You know, one of my students this past summer, uh, when I was talking to, after I'd taken the students to camp, on the bus, I asked them, what did you guys learn from camp? Right? We just spent this week at camp. What did you guys learn? And she said something really, really profound. She said, I realize that we often treat the Bible like a yearbook, where we want to see our picture, we want to see our friend group, we want to see our clubs that we were involved in. But the Bible isn't a yearbook. It's a story that talks about God's plan of redemption for us in the world. And in my head, I thought, I'm going to use that one day. That day is today. The name of God that we're talking, or that we're looking at today is Yahweh Tzedeknu, uh, which means God is my righteousness, or the Lord is our righteousness. You know, in the English language, we often look at righteousness as a moral or ethical standard, and it certainly does have that connotation to it. But the biblical definition of righteousness is a little more nuanced than just morals and ethics and doing good deeds. Righteousness is primarily defined and understood as a relational status. As God is righteous, he then clothes us in his righteousness through the shed blood of Jesus. Righteousness is a relational status. And the problem with only looking at righteousness through a moral ethical standard and not under this larger umbrella of it being a relational term and a relational idea is that we can often become very self-righteous. Uh, one dictionary definition I saw of righteousness, of self-righteousness that I really liked was self-righteousness is the idea that you are morally or ethically superior to someone 
and to remind them of that in a very annoying way. <laughs> I really like that last part. <laughs> um, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? You know, no, no one likes it when somebody acts self-righteous, and Christians, we are not self-righteous. We're the, we, we're, we should be the first, furthest thing from, from self-righteous because our righteousness doesn't come from us. It comes from another. So we'll be looking today at our primary psalm, Psalm 4, on this idea of God being our righteousness, much like it's an album. We'll be looking at the context of the psalm, how that psalm interacts with the rest of the Old Testament, and what that then means for us. So we're going to be looking at this passage as though it's a series of uh, concentric circles, so to speak. So if you have your Bibles today, turn to Psalm chapter 4. Um, actually, I jumped ahead. Psalm chapter 1. So before we get into Psalm 1, one of my professors in undergrad, uh, in a Psalms class that I took, it was my favorite classes I ever took, a class on the Psalms, he said that there are two primary ways to understand the Psalms. If you want to understand the meaning of the Psalm, understand its context and its neighborhood. Understand what the Psalms around it are saying. Second, understand that when the Psalms are speaking, it is we are learning about God by what God's people are saying to him. You know, just as we epistles, we're learning about what Paul is writing to a church. Just as with the Gospels or other narratives, we're learning about the, through the life, works, and teachings of Jesus. The Psalms, we are learning by what his people are praying and singing to him. And oftentimes, they're singing from places of distress, singing from places of joy, singing from places of anger even at times. But through whatever circumstance they may be in, we are learning about God through what his people are saying to him. And so to look at, we're going to look at the neighborhood of Psalm 4 by looking at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, you all might be familiar with this verse in Psalm chapter 1, the first two verses. Read this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Psalm 1 which and which in pairing with Psalm 2 serve as kind of the introduction and thesis statement into the Psalms. It's making this assertion, you've probably read this verse before, it's relatively well known. Blessed is the, uh, you know, it's making this assertion that you, a man or humanity is blessed when they meditate and delight in God's law. That if you meditate and delight in God's law, you will be righteous and blessed. Psalm 2, we won't read it, but then follows that claim by asserting that the Lord has an anointed servant whom he calls his son who reigns and rules over the nations. Psalm 1 and 2 were often read as a pair together at the coronation of Israel's kings to remind them to meditate on God's law and that their anointing and reign doesn't come from their own power and strength, but rather it comes from the God who placed them on the throne. Israel placed such great hope in the monarchy, and it's why they asked in Jesus' day, hey, are, are, are you the son of David? Are you the Messiah who's promised to come? Are you the one that the, that the Old Testament speaks about? That is when we then get to Psalm 4, which opens up with a plea of distress. 
And it's interesting that one of the first psalms after this thesis statement, which asserts that if you meditate on God's law, you're righteous and blessed, that he has a king who is reigning and ruling, that we then get to Psalm 4, and it opens up with this distress. And then we read here in Psalm chapter 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. This tone, it's distress, but, but there's almost like a confrontational kind of nature to it. He's making a plea to God and appealing to God based on the fact that God is righteous. It's interesting. We often think that these negative emotions that we might experience in our walk with God. I've been a Christian for a while. I've had seasons of frustration, sadness, sometimes even doubt. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has experienced these emotions. And sometimes we can be afraid to admit that or take that to God. And yet even in the psalmist's distress, it's really interesting that he goes and opens up to God openly and plainly and says, God, answer me when I call to you. You are my righteous God. Remember, righteousness is a relational quality, has a relational quality to it. He can go to God. He can open up to God because he has this relationship with God. And he's making his appeal based on God's righteousness. Verses 2 and 3 then give us the content of the distress. And we see this. How long will, my, will you, you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The source of the psalmist's distress is idolatry. It's idolatry, which is the worship of other idols and images that represent different gods. And it's important, I think, to remember that worshiping an idol isn't just merely the worshiping of a different god or the practicing of a different religion. Idolatry is really the core issue at the heart of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, the recent, uh, Tim Keller, who recently passed away this past year, pastor out of New York, talks about how he calls the human heart an idol-making machine, which I think is really clever. That it essentially takes good things and makes them into idols that drive us. He says this specifically, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give yourself what only God can give. I'll say that again. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart in imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give yourself what only God to give. And I think what really helps is examining the context of Israel's idolatry. Israel lives in a desert climate, right? It's in the Middle East. They're in a desert climate. And one of their primary, basically, sources of living, of life, of business, is agriculture, I'm about, now, I'm about to talk about desert agriculture, so if I say something wrong, Linda Merrill will let you know if I said something wrong, right? Uh, but if you are farming in the desert, what do you think one of your most precious resources is going to be? Water. Water, right? You're in the desert, you don't get a lot of water, but you're farming, so you need water, right? It's pretty simple and straightforward. 
Do you now, in the Old Testament, a lot of the idols throughout the Old Testament are referred to as Baals or Baals, Baals, B-A-A-L. Do you know what Baal is the god of? Does anyone know? Wait, did somebody say it? Not the, he's not the god of the sun, actually. He's the god, Baal is the god of storms. Or in other words, rain. Do you think that maybe, as an Israelite, growing up in a desert climate where farming is one of your main practices, that a god of rain might be really, really tempting to worship? Maybe you see your neighbor who doesn't worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and their crop looked really, really good this year. And maybe you and your fellow Israelite friends, you're farming, you're working, you're grinding out there, and your harvest just doesn't look as good. Maybe you might start putting your eggs in the Baal basket. And you're not really going to try and avoid Yahweh. You're not going to forsake Yahweh, but you'll just worship Baal just to kind of put your eggs in multiple baskets, just to kind of cover yourself, just to kind of cover your bases. I think when we view idolatry through that lens, idolatry actually becomes a lot more realistic and relatable. How often do we put comfort and security in things outside of God? How often do we put comfort and security in, for our children in academic su success, doing really, really well in school, going to a good college so they can get a good job? How often do we put comfort and success into the basket of living in a really, really safe, good neighborhood so that our kids can be around a lot of good and safe people as well? How often do we just put comfort and security in our jobs themselves, right? performing, doing well at our jobs, getting that promotion, getting that raise, right? The, just the comfort and security of what we do. And yet throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly telling his people to put their trust in him. Idols are not just about worshiping another statue or idol. It's about what is the thing that has taken the place of God in our life. The psalmist then gives a response to his distress in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 say this, Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous. Remember, righteousness, righteous is kind of our key word here today. And the psalmist's response to idolatry or worship of false idols and false gods is to offer righteous sacrifices. And why he uses this language is because sacrifices were part of the formal temple worship of Israel. It was part of their formal temple, temple liturgy. Right, just because, um, so yeah, sorry, let me back up a little bit. Um, sacrifices are part of Israel's formal temple worship. And so the psalmist's response is pretty simple, actually. Do not worship these false idols. Worship the God who is righteous and has given you his righteousness. Right? Uh, now, we might not think of ourselves today as like having a formal liturgy, but we do have a liturgy. All churches have a liturgy. 
whether you're on time to see like that full liturgy at church is a kind of another question entirely but all churches have a liturgy when we open up the when eddie opens up with the worship team when we open up and sit under the teaching of the word that is part of our liturgy when we take communion and to remember the blood and body of Jesus that was broken and shed for us, that is part of our liturgy. So sacrifices in the same way was part of that formal worship, that formal liturgy of Israel. And yet, in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, there are multiple instances where God says he hates the sacrifices, he hates the worship of Israel. And I don't use that word hate lightly. I just want you to know that, by the way. It's actually in Isaiah 1. He actually says, I hate your new moon festivals. I hate your uh, worship, right? When God says he hates something, it's not like saying, oh, I hate cilantro on my tacos. It's not like saying, oh, I just, I, I really hate that rival sports team, right? It's actual hatred. And God does not use that word lightly. Which begs the question, if God can hate the worship of his people, then I think we better be sure that we make sure that our worship is correct. This is the question that is between the Old Testament prophet Micah and Israel's leaders. This begs the question, what does it mean in Psalm, 5, uh, Psalm 4 or 5 when it talks about the sacrifice, the worship of the righteous? For that, we go to the Old Testament prophet Micah, right? Micah was a prophet in the pre-exilic and ex exilic period of Israel, the northern kingdom. So under David and Solomon, the 12 tribes of Israel were one nation, but then under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the nation was split into two, into the southern kingdom Judah, which was David's and Solomon's line, and the northern kingdom Israel, which was the 10 tribes of Israel. And both kingdoms were known for practicing rampant idolatry and rampant injustice. In fact, looking at the context of Micah, Micah is often heavily, heavily critical, mainly, primarily, of Israel's leaders. They're doing unethical business practices where they're skyrocketing, you know, the cost of rent to beyond a livable wage for the people that they're called to actually serve. Even Israel's spiritual leaders are basically kind of turning a blind eye to these unethical business practices of Israel's leaders and saying, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, God is still on our side, it's all good, it's no big deal, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? And Micah is just basically going at Israel's leaders saying, this is not what God has called you to do as leaders and shepherds of his people. And this kind of comes to a head in Micah chapter 6 into basically the climax of his whole thought and idea when he says this. He's basically creating this sort of rhetorical argument in his head. It says this in Micah chapter 6. I'm reading from the NASB, by the way, Micah 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. 
to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. If you forget what Micah's command is, you can just read it on my shirt here, actually. It's right here. Um, but Micah is essentially doing this. He's engaging with this rhetorical argument from Israel's leaders whom he's criticizing, where they're asking, well, Micah, what do you want us to do? What should we come to God with? Should we offer him burnt offerings? Should we offer him a year-old calf offering? That was a standard kind of Old Testament temple sacrifice in Israel's time. Well, what if we gave him a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Would that satisfy God's anger at us, Micah? That, by the way, that is an impossible sacrifice. He's being hyperbolic at this point, right? No one has a thousand rams. No one has 10,000 rivers worth of olive oil. It's like saying, well, do you want me to just give a gazillion, bajillion dollars, Micah? Would that make you happy? And the person actually just escalates it even further at the end of verse 7. Shall I offer my firstborn, Micah? Should I do that? Would God be happy with me then? What more does God want from me? What would I gave my firstborn? For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. And Micah simply responds, he already told you what to do. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. The sacrifice of the righteous, the worship of righteous people, looks like justice. Now, that might be you might be kind of struggling to understand, well, Kevin, what does justice actually have to do with righteousness? I'm not sure I really fully understand that. Well, it works like this, actually. They actually have a very close-knit relationship. In the Old Testament, justice and righteousness are twin pillars that constantly occur together. In fact, righteousness, as it appears in our psalm, or righteous, its noun form, when it appears in our psalm, it occurs 150 times. And about one-third of those occurrences, 50, over 50 times, it occurs with the word justice. Uh, we, we just uh, uh, recognized the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington, and he quotes Amos 5.24 when he says, And we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. This relationship between justice and righteousness is all over the Old Testament. And in the NT, the connection goes even to the grammatical level, actually. Right? They're used almost, they, in the New Testament, these words share a grammatical root, dikaios, which is righteousness, and dikaiosune, which is justice. And they're actually even used at times interchangeably, interchangeably. This is kind of the whole message behind the book of Romans, right? Jesus is the only righteous person, but by his death, through his blood, we are then made righteous or justified, made righteous to God. And as a result of that righteousness, we then offer our body as a living sacrifice, as living worship to that God. Just the sacrifice, the worship of the righteous is justice. But that kind of begs the question, what do we mean by justice? Do we mean it just merely in like a legal sense, like a law and order sense? Do we mean it in a sort of John Wayne type of justice, right? Or what some would call retributive justice? Here in the U.S., we do tend to value retributive justice. I know this because my brothers and I watched a lot of movies growing up about retributive justice, uh, and we would often dress up as 
Batman or the Power Rangers or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And typically the older brother got to be Batman or the Power Rangers. And the younger brother did not have a choice and had to be the bad guy. And, uh, and basically at the end, basically would have to lose because in those stories, it's about retributive justice. Good guys beat the bad guys and the good guys win, right? Um, my parents are here, by the way, so I don't know how much that they were familiar with how, how much that went on in our house growing up. But uh, I will say, uh, by the way, I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't be held accountable or responsible for their actions. But I am saying is that we tend to view justice through this lens of retribution. And there will be a day, by the way, where God deals with evil, with sin, in its wholeness and in its entirety. But I think the overarching umbrella, the overarching way in which God talks about justice in the Bible is this idea of restorative justice. Justice that restores the humanity and dignity and image-bearing of individuals. Restorative justice that looks to someone's conditions and looks to say, how can I reflect God's goodness back to you? One of my professors back in seminary used to talk about um, how when we argue about the creation of the world, we're often, we often get bogged down in this idea of arguing for human existence and the nature of existence. But the Bible in Genesis is going so much deeper than the level of human existence. It's going at the level of human flourishing, that God is good, He's created a world that is good for our good, and we as human beings partner with God and reflect that goodness back to our neighbor, back to others as well, because we have this relationship with this good God. Human existence versus human flourishing. A theologian by the name of Nicholas Wolsterhoff, uh, I love German theologian names, they're so fun to say. Nicholas Wolsterhoff talks about this idea of the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. It's a distinct set of four different groups of people who are considered the most uh, vulnerable and marginalized of Israel's society. This is the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. They are often people with no rights or ability to advocate for themselves. This, is a, this group or members of this group are mentioned all throughout Scripture, sometimes together, sometimes in isolation, but they can be found all over and all throughout Scripture. But they're not just meant to be, you know, just a conceptual idea. It's not just meant to be a metaphor where we spiritualize our own spiritual poverty before God. It's meant to cause us to reflect and look around who are the vulnerable in our world today? Who are the vulnerable that need God's restorative justice? Who is not experiencing the human flourishing that God has created and designed us for? In, in the passage that where God's title, Yahweh Tzedekinu, occurs in the Old Testament. It only occurs in one spot in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. It says this, 
Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We talked about Psalm 1 and 2, if you recall, that it's talking about how the Lord's anointed is reigning and ruling. Jeremiah is promising to an exiled Israel that one day the blessed man that's talked about in Psalm 1 and 2, the Lord's anointed, will reign and administer justice and righteousness. That he's a descendant and a branch of David and justice and righteousness, both of these ideas, these twin pillar ideas, will be the foundation of his throne and of his kingdom. At the how it works basically, I think, is like this. At the cross, Jesus is the only righteous person in all of history. And he receives the full justice of God by taking on our sins, the sins of the unrighteous, which then restores our righteousness before God or justifies us. So that then we who are made righteous are now agents and access points for God's restorative justice for the vulnerable. When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus doesn't only just die on the cross. And I'm not trying to say that dismissively, by the way. Not at all. Not, not at all. Please don't misunderstand me. But we see, we get entire chapters and sections of Jesus showing what this kingdom of justice and righteousness looks like. It's serving the most vulnerable. It's serving the most marginalized. It's serving and loving those who really cannot pay him back any due, but simply out of his love to see humans flourish as God has designed. And in fact, this is so essential to Jesus's ministry and nature that he then tells his disciples to pray this way in Matthew, right? He tells them, your king, God, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. The kingdom of God is not just this place where we escape to go to, but it is a reality that we live into as citizens of a kingdom that is founded on justice and righteousness. If righteousness deals with our standing before God, justice is essentially dealing with our standing and our relationship with our neighbor. You know, over the summer, I took five students on a mission trip to inner city Chicago to serve at a ministry that I had used to volunteer for, which is, this is their shirt, by the way, Micah 6.8 is their kind of a key verse. Um, I, so I took them to a ministry that I used to serve at and volunteer at called Sunshine Gospel Ministries. And I wore a few different hats while I was there, but I think my favorite role, role was working with their high school outreach program. And my friend who ran the program, I, I was still pretty new. I'd only been there for about a month or so. He allowed me to do the teaching program and devotional one night. And I was super excited, and I don't remember my exact passage. I think it was John 3.16 or something like that. And um, but it, it was a message about how, you know, God loves us. Jesus, he's, that he's, God loves us so much, he sent Jesus down to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we could have eternal life with God. And I closed it and prayed it. And there was always like a Q&A time at the end, which can be dangerous sometimes. But 
one student's hand immediately shot up into the air, right? And he said, okay, Kevin, if God loves me so much, why doesn't he care about me and what I'm going through? And I remember being a little confused at first. I thought, well, I just told you he cares about you and loves you. He sent his son down to die for you. And the, but the student was adamant. He said, God doesn't love me. Look at what I'm going through in my home. Look at what I'm going through in my family. Look at my friends and people in my community. Look, do you think this is God loving me? And I remember I was kind of baffled by that. And my friend kind of slowly took over and took care of it because he knew that I was still new and just probably wasn't in a place to handle that. That question is pretty common, though, right? It's essentially dealing with a problem of evil. If God is good, why do bad things happen? And I was a, I'd done my first year of Bible college at that point. I talked about the problem of evil in a theology and philosophy classes. But in that moment, when I was faced with someone who was a, a teenager, like really just a child, who was wrestling with the reality of evil in the world that they lived in, I didn't have an answer. Certainly not one that my experience and my education had taught me. In the Micah 6-8 passage that we read, the last two references, um, love mercy, or your versions might say kindness, and walk humbly. Uh, mercy is in reference to this idea of chesed, which is God's covenant love for Israel, his rescuing love, essentially, that Israel then shows to one another. Hum humility, humbleness is just that simple ability to look at someone in their circumstances and address them humbly, to not just simply say, well, why can't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Why can't you just work harder? But to really look at a person and what they're going through and, and to take it seriously. We cannot do justice unless we have compassion and humility. So often when we look at the circumstances that someone might be going through, it's so easy for us, I think especially where we come from, to come up with answers and responses and, well, why don't you try this? Or here's maybe what you should do more of. And yet God is also saying, along with justice, we require mercy and humility. You know, on this, on this Chicago trip, what I loved about this trip was that for a week, our students who grew up in this Walnut Diamond Bar area got to realize that the gospel is so, so, so much bigger than their own experiences. That the gospel is so much bigger than how it's worked in their lives, that it has power to work in someone else's life as well. And that call to do justice for someone else, for someone from a different background, for someone who is in a very different situation than you are, that can be scary. That can be difficult, but the psalm ends with this, and I'll close here. It ends with this in verses 6 through 8. Many of the Lord are asking us, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. That phrase, let the light of your shine face shine on us, is part of the Levitical blessings of the, priest, of the, Levitical, of the priesthood in the book of Numbers, and I, it deals with this idea of God's presence. And I think what it's saying is this, is that as, we, as God calls us to love and serve our neighbors, to advocate for justice for them, to advocate for their flourishing, 
we know that God is not calling us to a place that he isn't already there. God doesn't call us to places that he himself is not willing to go to. The question is, are we willing to join God in the work that he is already doing? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you that, Lord, our righteousness is not something that's derived from our own. Our righteousness is not something that's derived from our own ability, our own, um, our own status, Lord, our own understanding, but it's something that simply is derived from your Son. Lord, but I pray that we wouldn't just be a people who enjoy the perks of Jesus' sacrifice, but Lord, that we would be a people, we would be a church who join in with him in his mission, Lord, of seeing your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done here as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.